This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm going to be um, sharing this presentation on behalf of the Unidos and Salud um, collaboration um, with my colleague, uh, Mr. John Jacobo. So no one is ever really ready for a pandemic. But one thing that we know for sure is that it takes a community to end a pandemic. And what I'm going to do is to walk through the journey that we have had in the Unidos and Salud um, collaboration since the beginning of the COVID pandemic. So um, if we rewind back to um, March of last year, what we had noticed in the hospital at San Francisco General Whereas typically about 20% of our um, persons were hospitalized were Latinx, over 80% of all the patients who were being hospitalized were COVID were Latinx. And what was being noticed in the community, and John will talk about it, is that the Latinx community was being disproportionately affected by COVID. So we each had a mission to help figure out solutions to what was happening, to understand the science and support the community. So we came together to generate data, to drive solutions, to generate scientific insights, policy, and resources. And we created a community academic city partnership, which John will talk about more, where we did a number of activities and we continue to do so over the last year and a half. So the first thing that we did was we wanted to understand most of COVID. Fortunately, only a small percentage of people get seriously ill for COVID and end up in the hospital. But when this pandemic came about, we did not really know or understand what was happening at the community level. So what we wanted to do was to characterize and understand the disease um, in the mission districts, which we know right in the backyard of San Francisco General Hospital during the late weeks of April. And between April 25th and 28th, we were about six weeks into shelter in place. And what we wanted to do was to survey as many people as possible to understand, had they had COVID before? Do they have COVID now? And what are the risk factors for COVID? So we focused on a census tract in the mission district that's the most um, dense in terms of uh, population level per um, household. And you can see some of the characteristics of this census track. It was 50, it is 58% Latinx and 30, it's economically heterogeneous. 34% of the household income is less than $50,000 per year. So one of the things when we started out wanting to understand what was happening at the community level, is that, you know, we could say is why we had to ask ourselves is widespread community based testing even possible. Um, there was no place to do testing because everything was shut down. We didn't have volunteers. We didn't have enough PPE. There was concern that we wouldn't have protocols to, to um, handle sick patients. And then community perceptions needed to be overcome. People were unwilling to test if they were asymptomatic. Um, people didn't want to leave their homes because we had told them you shouldn't leave homes. And people were concerned about, you know, is testing even safe? Who will you give my information to? And at that time, we did not know where we were going to have the laboratory supplies to do this. And we, there were no labs available to perform testing at scale for this research. So as a result of this partnership that was established between UCSF 
the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub, who did all of the testing for free, and the Latino Task Force and the Department of Public Health, um, we created this consortium. And we started out, and John will talk about this um, a little bit later, we mobilized the community to get out and get tested. We advertised and we did door-to-door campaigning. Um, um, the Brava Theater donated their space for us to set up our headquarters, which we are still using this today. And this is just a picture of some of the members of our collaboration. So what did we find out um, when we set out to test all these thousands of people that were in the mission? Well, first of all, we found that there was a very high demand for testing. You know, back in April, it was very difficult to get a test. And what we were able to accomplish in four days was we were were able to test over 4,000 individuals. And that represented at that time, 29% of all the tests that had been done in San Francisco. We did testing outdoors, as you can see here, we set up tents in schools and in parks in the Mission District. What I wanna share with you uh, is that the important observations we made during that early study in April um, of 2020. First of all, we found out that COVID or SARS-CoV-2 PCR positivity was 20-fold higher in the Latinx versus the non-Latinx population. What you can see is that the, the, the prevalence was about 5% in Latinx residents and workers compared to 0.2% in non-Latinx um, residents and workers. And we tested thousands of people. Secondly, we made a very interesting observation because we did both antibody testing and PCR testing and antibody testing was testing prior infections, what we found, and this is really not surprising, is that early infections occurred across a, a large range of demographics. But then as, as um, the weeks went by, the infections predominantly settled in frontline workers. So you can see the race ethnicity in early infections was um, much more um, distributed among Latinx and white population compared to the most recent infections when we were testing when 96% of those infections were all in um, the Latinx population. And also when we looked at the worker types, you can see that um, prior to April, the end of April, infections were occurring in frontline workers and non-frontline workers, but pretty soon the infections settled in the frontline workers. And what we found out is, and this is not surprising, that the PCR, the infections, were highest among those who could not work from home. And what you can see is that among the PCR-positive individuals, 93% were those frontline workers, those individuals who couldn't stay at home and protect themselves from COVID, though still working outside of the home or furloughed um, or, or who were unemployed. This is a really, I think, very, very important observation in terms of how we needed to understand to protect the community. These were the frontline workers that were keeping the city going when people were in their homes or their apartments uh, uh, working remotely. The fourth important observation we made is we addressed this question, can we rely on symptoms for case detection? And the answer to that question was a firm no. At this time, testing was only being offered for symptomatic people. 
We knew based on data and evidence that had been shared from other scientists around the world that, in fact, that people who are asymptomatic can harbor high levels of virus. And what we found out was over half the people who were PCR positive reported no symptoms at all. And this, in fact, is one of the Achilles heel of the SARS-CoV-2 virus and why it has been so successful to rapidly spread around the world is that people who feel totally fine and are asymptomatic can have very high levels of virus and pass it to other individuals. And in our collaboration with um, Dr. Joe DeRisi, who, as I mentioned, performed all the PCR testing for free in this really ambitious project to test 4,000 people in the mission, that what we found out that there were multiple introductions of strains causing COVID that were circulating in the, um, in the mission district. Some of these strains were um, uh, uh, derived from European strains. Other ones were derived from Chinese strains. What we also could show that there was evidence of household transmission, and this was most likely to be occurring in multifamily households. So that is what we found out when we first set out to understand what is happening on the community level. We, we, we generated data and evidence to show that, yes, the Latinx population was being disproportionately affected, and it was predominantly because the Latinx workers were keeping our city going and were unable to shelter in place. So then over the next couple of months, the Unidos and Salud collaboration sought to solve a series of problems. And I'm going to describe those problems to you and share with you what are some of the solutions that we came up. So the first problem that we found out that testing, before we had vaccines, we were relying essentially solely on people getting tested and being identified of COVID and going into shelter in place to stop the chains of transmission. But what we knew was that testing alone was not enough in order to support communities that were being disproportionately affected. And the solution was to develop what we called and developed and prototype a test-to-care model. And in brief, what a test-to-care model is, after people are identified as having active infection, we don't just say, oh, you have COVID, please stay at home. What we do is that we provide supportive services for those individuals and households so they have the supplies that they need. They have the information about how COVID is transmitted. They have protective masks and gloves that they can use at home in order that they can safely isolate at home during the period of um, when people are infectious, which would typically at that time we identified as a period of 10 to 14 days. And for this model, this was developed by members of the Latino task force. Um, here, Susana and Susie Rojas really prototyped this, and we brought supplies, and they delivered these supplies to all the households and families of people were found who were infected with COVID, and this allowed them to stay at home safely. Well, the second problem, which I'm sure many of you listening to this can identify, is that the results took a really long time to get back, and we know that people are most have the highest risk for transmission early on in disease. And so if it takes a week for the test results to get back, that doesn't do much good in terms of identifying people early to get them in isolation. So what we did um, at our testing sites that we had established in the mission um, at transportation hubs is that we tested 
field tested one of the rapid tests, the Binax Now, um, which you can see here on the left, which in um, a time period of, um, of uh, 20 minutes, you can see whether a person is infected with COVID, which a high rate of accuracy. Um, and what you can see is that there is a line across sample um, that is right below this, like a pregnancy test when it's done that shows that a person is actively infected. So we use the Binax Now cards out in the field. We tested people within 30 minutes, we had results. Um, people went home, they didn't wait for the results, but um, we contacted them um, immediately. And what we showed that under a variety of environmental conditions, that we could use these tests, provide results to people and get the test results back accurately. So what we need to do was to combine these two interventions that we had worked on over the summer and combine rapid testing and a supportive response. And what this graph shows is, is if we have 10 days that we can use to try to break the transmissions, what we showed that was when we use PCR only, we only had three of the 10 days where we could on average get people into effective isolation. But by using this combination of both the rapid tests and provided the supportive services, we could tell people their results, provide them with the, the services they needed at home so they could safely isolate at home. And instead of having three days of effective isolation, on average, we had seven days of effective isolation. And this is a program that has been adapted in many different areas around the country and even around the world. So what these, these collaborative projects and prototypes we did in collaboration with the Latino Task Force had really profound impacts on policy in San Francisco. So first of all, there was no low barrier testing in the Mission District that was being disproportionately affected. And this led to the city of San Francisco setting up new testing sites and setting up in testing sites in the most highly affected neighborhoods. Secondly, the DPH, as a result of our data, expanded the criteria for testing and did not limit it to people just who were symptomatic, but offered testing to people who were both asymptomatic and symptomatic. Um, we showed the value, the value of the test-to-care programs and the public health department expanded the funding to develop community wellness teams that supported um, individuals from communities that could really benefit from these services. We also demonstrated the need for people who um, didn't have, most of the people that we were servicing um, did not have um, health benefits and they didn't have ways to support their families or their households when they were in isolation. So um, in, uh, as a result of Supervisor Hillary Ronan in the district, um, the Board of Supervisors, she um, proposed legislation in a program called Right to Recover, which exists to this state which provides wage replacement for individuals who otherwise do not qualify for services so they can have a wage and a way to support their families and households while they were in isolation, while they cannot work. Um, this also, the data that I showed you was used in the FDA package approval for the Binex Now rapid testing for asymptomatic in, um, individuals. And these actually now are available. You can buy them. Um, in the drugstore, and we still use this at our testing site. So this is what we did um, in 2020. And here you can see the cases in San Francisco over time. 
March 22nd was the first week of our reported cases. And then we had uh, a small surge um, in the summer. And then coming up into the Thanksgiving uh, time period where we did a healthy holiday campaign. And then up into the, uh, the Christmas and New Year's holidays, we were seeing a major, major surge. So this was very concerning. Um, we were still relying on testing as a major way to block transmission. But fortunately, at this time, we um, got the news of the incredible vaccines that we were going to have. And um, we, the Unidos and Salud collaboration, um, created a new vision and a new um, effort, which we called Bridge to End the Pandemic. And Unidos and Salud really sought to shut down COVID transmission and improve lives and livelihood of, of communities most impacted by COVID due to health disparities. And we were going to do that through a number of new initiatives. Um, we would continue test and respond, but also conduct surveillance for emerging COVID variants. We wanted to prepare, prototype, and activate low barrier vaccine sites um, in the mission neighborhood. And we really wanted to support safe reopening of our city. So this is how we went uh, uh, forward in this program. And uh, this is really the theme of the second part of this presentation is it was at this point, there was a race between the virus and us getting uh, our community vaccinated. So first I wanna share with you what we learned in our collaboration. Every single person that we were testing, if they had a positive result, it was um, genotyped in the uh, in Joe DeRisi's Chan Zuckerberg um, biohub. So um, the questions that we wanted to ask were: What are the circulating variants among the testers? Um, and uh, uh, what do we know about the chains of transmission among these variants? And we were interested in the UK, the B one one seven strain. We didn't know if we had any South Africa or Brazilian strains. And uh, we wanted to see what was happening in the mission. And we could go back from the very beginning um, of the pandemic and look at the trends that we saw. So what I'm going to share with you is just um, a, a summary of what we found out. And um, what we noticed that was in our Healthy Holiday Campaign, which was conducted around Thanksgiving in November, that we saw the emergence of a new strain which is called the West Coast variant or the California variant. And at this time, the prevalence of this variant was about 16% of all the isolates that were sequenced in the Derisi's lab. What we found out that this variant, by the time January came along, was over 50% of all the variants um, that were seen. So because we were working very closely with the community and we could look at household transmission, we were able to generate information about the characteristics of this new West Coast variant. What we found that it was the transmissibility was slightly higher than the, the predominant strain that had been circulating really for nearly a year in San Francisco. It was about 31% more transmissible. The disease severity, at least in our data, didn't look any different. There were the same levels of virus with the West Coast versus a non-West Coast variant, the same percentage of people who had symptoms versus didn't have symptoms. We found that unlike the UK variant, called the B117 strain, that this West Coast variant did have a 
slight increase in transmissibility, but it was nothing compared to the UK strain and no increase in disease severity. So this was a really important finding that we were able to share um, with the broader community, our health department, the state, and the larger global community about the emergence of this West Coast strain. So then we knew that vaccines worked, that they were going to become available. So in January, right during the surge, we said, well, we need to understand what is the community thinking about vaccinations? So we, in January, surveyed over 4,000 adults who came for testing, and we did this in, in nine days. And this map just shows where the people were coming for testing um, at this time um, in the mission. So the, the results of this were really very interesting and encouraging. So what we found out was when we asked, you know, what proportion of all these respondents were interested in receiving vac vaccination, despite other surveys, which had actually been done online, um, uh, which probably didn't reach a lot of the people that we were reaching, um, we found that 86% of people um, were interested in receiving um, a vaccine. And the majority of those people wanted to get it as soon as possible. There were some people that were vaccine hesitant, and this was very important information um, for us to know because it helped us design our outreach program. Um, and what we found out was that um, low-income persons and those who skipped their flu shot or had vaccine-reluctant friends or family were the most likely to be vaccine hesitant. And I think this is very intuitive and really you know, made sense, but also gave us um, some insight into how we might use this information to reach people. And then when we asked them, you know, what were their concerns? The major concern was side effects. Um, and, you know, a, about a quarter of individuals just felt the vaccines were too, too new, that they were developed too quickly. And there was a lot of distrust in the, in the um, health system. There also, when we asked people, who do you trust the most? Um, there was a lot of trust in doctors um, and in Latino task force and community groups. Um, but it was really important to know that really over half of the people that we surveyed didn't have um, a primary care provider or weren't in a healthcare system, which really told us we needed to make vaccines available in the community. So what we did was with this information, we developed a vaccination strategy, which had three parts. We call it motivate, vaccinate, and activate. The motivation part of it, which John will talk a little bit about, is just to reach out in the community and educate and let people know about the vaccine and address any questions. The vaccination part of our um, program is um, a vaccination site that's right at the mission, at Mission and 24th, on-site re um, registration, uh, a focus on customer service, respect for the elders. And then the third part of our vaccination strategy is to harness social networks that existed among people in the community that we were trying to reach. And what we did was we shared with people that each vaccinated person, we wanted to empower them to recruit others. So what happened with this vaccination strategy? So it seems to be working pretty well. We vaccinated now over 20,000 persons at our um, mission vaccination site. 85% of these are persons of color and most clients survey heard about our site from friends and family just passing by the site and by receiving invitations that we passed out to people that had tested previously with us. We asked people, why did you choose our vaccine site? 
And many chose the vaccine site because it was easy, there was convenient scheduling, because it was in their neighborhood, because someone had suggested um, it to them. And I think very importantly, over 50% of those surveyed thought they, had re- they would have received their vaccination much later had this community-based site not existed. 99% of our surveyed clients said that they would recommend the vaccine site, and the clients said they liked the friendly staff, the site efficiency, and the staff being bilingual. And in terms of how successful we were to activate people, and this was really um, very interesting, important information. What's shown here on the right is many of the people um, knew, for example, you know, over 50% of new people who were not vaccinated. And the primary reason was for, sa- for, um, uh, for safety reasons. But we, knew, we know now that over half of the people that we empowered to reach out to their friends and families not vaccinated, talk to them and convince them to come and get vaccinated. So um, finally, what we have done recently now with the exciting approval of the vaccines for 12 and older, that we, we surveyed over a thousand parents. And I'm just gonna summarize rather quickly um, what we found out was that among parents, there was a high interest in the vaccine vaccinating for children with over 90% of parents in all age groups responding that the children were probably or definitely um, get uh, vaccinated. The predictors of um, vaccine hesitancy um, were really, it was more for the younger children, understandably for whom data are not yet um, available. It's interesting to look at the motivations of the parents to keep their children safe and to keep their um, uh, communities safe. And the preference for location of parents to vaccinate their children, um, over half of them said they would like to get them vaccinated at a community site, such as the Capman 24th Street site, where we had prototyped and we're doing ongoing vaccinations. So this summary of our community-based vaccination strategy, that it's working and it's reaching the highly affected population and vaccinated persons are serving as ambassadors to unvaccinated persons. Among the over 1,000 vaccinated parents, the majority decide to have their children vaccinated. We started vaccinating youth um, this past Sunday. I think we vaccinated over 300 um, youth since Sunday. And the model, really, um, this community partnership model, community-facing, appears to be working very well. And before I end, I just want to come back to where we started. It takes a community to end a pandemic. Um, when we look at the COVID mortality in San Francisco, Um, It's among the lowest, three lowest in the United States, um, uh, in line with what's seen in Honolulu, um, Hawaii, and in in, uh, Washington State. And also, I think, just to say that livelihoods have been restored, and just so proud that the vaccination rate, fully vaccination rate in San Francisco of 61%, if it were a country, it'd probably be one of the top two countries in the world of vaccination um, uh, coverage. And I think we're really honored as part of the um, uh, Unidos and Salud Task Force to have contributed to that effort. So I'd like now to just thank all the partners that contributed to this work, to all our funding agencies, and turn it over to John Jacobo to really share with you um, how this partnership started, how it's working, and his perspective of the events over the last year. Thank you, Diane, for um, such a wonderful presentation. To think uh, all of that happened in just about a year and to be able to put it in a PowerPoint, I think is tremendous. 
Um, for those of you that don't know, uh, I am John Jacobo with the Latino Task Force, um, an organization that came into existence at the beginning of the pandemic uh, when many of us got calls about a shelter in place. Um, understanding that a pandemic was taking over not just a certain part of the world, but um, of our very own mission district, the country and the state, uh, many longtime organizers from this beautiful neighborhood that I happen to be blessed to be from um, sprung into action, understanding that we would have to respond to the pain of the pandemic in one form of, or the other. Uh, at the beginning, for many of us, to be sincere, the biggest uh, thoughts that we had were around the basic living situations that people would be confronted with when their jobs are taken away. Um, a huge focus went in to, to look at food um, and how people would be able to eat. When I was young, my mom raised me on a saying of, when hunger comes knocking at the door, love goes flying out the window. So always make sure that, you know, you can keep a job and put food on the table. And so for many of the original organizers of the LTF, that was a big kind of component to wrap our, our um, collective force around. The second that we knew um, was, of course, uh, now that kids had to go home and had to learn from home, we knew that from one of our largest nonprofits here in the Mission District, that 33% of monolingual Spanish-speaking families don't have access to the Internet at home or have uh, laptops. And so uh, who is now president of the Board of Education, Gabriela Lopez uh, and the Education Committee began to wrap their energy around providing Chromebooks and having the school district mobilize itself to take care of those that are most in need. Uh, but both of the things I'm telling you, I'm telling you because they are the underpinnings of why the pandemic turned on the Latino community the way that it did. Um, as we now know, but then didn't know, um, this was going to impact the Latino community more significantly than any other ethnic group in the city. Um, and I'll tell you, it's not because we don't know how to wear masks. It's not because we don't adhere to CDC guidance. It is because of the very inequities that give us the kind of society that we happen to live in. It's because we have many Latinos here in the Mission District who earn under $50,000 a year and live in a neighborhood where a two bedroom goes for $4,500 a month. It's why we found 30 people living in a three bedroom, 10 people living in a one bedroom. Um, it's why we understand that people, pandemic or not, are gonna go to work. And it's not because they don't wanna adhere to guidances because they don't wanna be good members of society. It's because they have to survive. And so the Latino Task Force and the individuals who comprise it understand this very personally. And we are blessed geographically to have one of the strongest partners that we could uh, in this battle uh, in the form of UCSF and in the form of Dr. Havlier, Dr. Marquez, and uh, Dion Jones, a retired health nurse um, from Ward 86. Um, just some individuals of many that allowed us to sit at a table and begin to think through how we can tackle this pandemic. And I know that like me, many of you have lived through this and we've heard this great presentation from Dr. Havlier, but a lot of it has been built on the trust of the community and the community leaders that have been fighting all the fights um, pre-pandemic and I'll tell you post-pandemic of trying to bring these inequities to an end in this neighborhood and try to bring a better quality of life. 
And so we were excited when UC approached us um, to begin to talk through uh, in-community testing. Uh, I know that at the time, the latest info was that in the Bronx in New York, they were seeing disparities for the Latino community and the Black community. And I think many of us here anecdotally began hearing of people that were losing their sense of taste, their sense of smell. Um, I can attest to a brother-in-law, cousin, many folks that were displaying the same symptoms that we now know are synonymous with COVID-19, but couldn't get a COVID test because they hadn't traveled to Wuhan, China, and the policies weren't favorable for people to be able to be tested. And so when this came about, uh, we mobilized behind this effort. And uh, as I like to say, all hopped in this canoe together and began to kind of go downstream in a very succinct way. And uh, I'll end by saying, and I think this is important from a community standpoint, it was as successful as it was um, for two reasons. I think one is just the philosophy of Dr. Havlier's group and, and this particular group within UC that we work with and our own Latino task force community group, uh, which is around a harm reduction model. This idea that we can provide education we can go out and try to do these things and bring people to it as opposed to try to scold them into getting it done. And the second and the most important piece is a respect for community in a true and empathetic way. I think oftentimes, and, and I've worked uh, within city departments, um, I serve as a commissioner here in the city, and I can tell you that I know oftentimes folks within uh, leadership can think of community kind of as an afterthought. Um, because we are, you know, respective experts in whatever it is we do, sometimes there can be the sense of, we know more than you do. And at the beginning of the pandemic, I think there was a lot of those attitudes in terms of, um, say, leaders uh, of city leaders and maybe community groups. Uh, but what was different for this and for our partnership was that there was a true kind of harmonious um, collaboration and respect for the leadership of community to define what needed to be done in the best terms to produce the highest output. Um, and so you see what we've been able to net in doing those things and being able to collaborate. Um, so I know we're, you know, I call it a halfway point almost to the finish line, whatever you, whatever you say, but I know that we will continue this work and continue to involve the output uh, until the pandemic is actually done. I want to thank you uh, both, Dr. Havlier and Mr. Jacobo, for an amazing presentation about that story um, of uh, how we fought uh, COVID-19 in our, in our own community here. Um, uh, one, one question that um, comes to mind is, uh, so the, the test-to-care model is, is really amazing. It, the idea of lowering barriers and bringing into the community and then increasing support for those who test positive is really um, remarkable. Um, and it looks like it's been disseminated through medical literature. I'm curious if, if there's been an economic analysis, because we know that um, to get other um, communities to implement this, you know, money speaks. So here we have uh, the will and effort. Um, has there been a sort of a scientific economic analysis show? I mean, and I would, I'm almost certain that it is economically beneficial, but has anything been done to, to show that, to, to prove it and get it disseminated 
for our other communities. Um, thanks, Jeffrey, for that question. So what I can say is that um, we developed, we, are, we had really incredibly high demand to disseminate how we were doing this model. So we did a toolkit. Um, a UCSF um, professor, Dr. Starley Shade, has done costing of this, uh, uh, of this approach. And um, when we have time to breathe, um, modeling will be done to do this. It's, you're absolutely right. This makes complete sense. I think just wanted to capture, hopefully in the presentation, it has been a complete sprint since we started working together in March. And um, I think, uh, thanks for bringing that up. Um, this is not going to be our last pandemic. And this, the whole idea when one is trying to break chains of transmission to ensure people have the services, besides the physical place to go to another place what the city really stepped up and did, which was excellent, I think really needs to um, uh, be done. And thank you for that question. And if I can actually just add in to kind of, I guess, um, add to it, right, is at the beginning when we were doing these surveys and doing this community outreach, and we're talking to community members, the first kind of response when we're saying, hey, you should get tested for COVID to see if you have it is, well, I'm anecdotal. I mean, I'm just not anecdotal. I'm asymptomatic. I don't feel anything. Um, if I can't go to work because I have to stay home for two weeks, how am I going to feed my kids? How am I going to be able to you know, make up for the lost income? And those are real questions that literally, I mean, that's what sprung kind of this entire project was to ensure that those kinds of concerns can be taken care of. And we were doing our right to recover um, advocacy around trying to get more funding from the city. We were able to show that there was a 97% adherence to this shelter in place model because you're giving people the things they need to be able to stay home and not have to choose between being a good member of society and staying at the house because you're asymptomatic and don't want to get sick, somebody sick, or being a good parent or a good, you know, sibling or spouse or whatever, and being able to go out and provide food uh, for families. So I think the economic model, of course, is going to be there to support that. But the anecdotal is just so important in that we've been able to witness uh, the power of this program. Yeah, I would say this program is not just a model for infectious disease, but for healthcare. So high blood pressure, there are barriers to get to your doctor and get, you know, your blood pressure checked. And then once you're identified with high blood pressure, there are barriers to getting your medicines. And if we identify groups of, you know, populations or communities that have those barriers and go in with this type of intervention, I mean, we, we could really turn the disparities in healthcare significantly around. In our country. So I applaud you both for, for what you're doing and, and creating a model really for all of healthcare. Um, fantastic. Um, uh, Dr. Barron suggested a few questions. He, he suggested asking uh, how we, how, if you can describe a little more how harm reduction was utilized in the COVID pandemic in the Mission District and, and San Francisco. Um, so for us, I mean, very early on when we were out here um, at the beginning of the pandemic, trying to convince folks that masks were needed. Um, there was a lot of heated debates that were going on and people obviously maybe shunning other folks, et cetera, for not doing this, not doing that. But we know that that can also have the counter kind of uh, response of what one would want. 
And so for us, we really developed kind of this friendly approach to masking is literally going out with a couple of masks, walking by the park where, you know, folks tend to hang out, have a quick conversation as to why you're doing it, why it's important to do, and then handing out a few masks and literally doing that kind of over and over and over again until it really did become more of a culture of kind of acceptance, right? To, it got to the point where, you know, some of our favorite neighborhood folks that tend to be out uh, and maybe are, you know, just out and about a lot and had three masks, right? They were carrying a bunch of masks and it just became this thing that um, was incredibly popular in a way that we never had to get out and shun anybody. We never had to look down our nose at anybody. We just had to do our best to provide the information and provide those very basic resources they would need to take care of themselves and more importantly, take care of others. Another question is uh, like clearly giving vaccines in within the communities. Fantastic. Um, what about the idea of uh, PCPs, primary doctors being able to give vaccines and um, in their offices or um, you know, how, like, is that is that a possibility? Is that something that we'll see? Or what are the barriers that we see to that? I, I think one thing that, I mean, the, the San Francisco vaccination strategy, the mayor strategy, really, I mean, really worked extremely well. Mass yes. vaccination sites, facility-based sites for the highest risk populations, um, and then community sites. Now, in that strategy, you don't have primary care. What I can say is, yes, of course, we, we want to have everyone to have access to vaccines in the easiest way as possible. But please note that even though, you know, everybody in San Francisco theoretically has insurance of this highly affected population, over half of them said, I don't even have a primary care doctor. And they don't have health insurance. So if you are in the midst of a pandemic, you have to get out of the brick and mortar. You have to get within the communities. And you, and I, I think, you know, we're vaccinating. I mean, this is the site that we're working at is in the parking lot behind McDonald's, you know, at, at uh, 24th and Mission. It's a small site. We're easily vaccinating 500 people a day. So there's also a bit of an efficiency in that um, doing community-based sites. And also, I, I think there's... Um, the sense of community, and John can talk about this, at our testing and at our vaccination site, there's an ambiance and sense of community. There's music, there's conversation, there's people talking with each other, it's community facing, people meet and greet each other. And it, it's the sense of we're all in this together. And um, John, maybe you can talk about that a little more, because I think that's also another advantage of out of facility community-based sites. I think the number one rule here should just be bring it to the people. If you want to get it done, no matter how amazing the site might be out by the Embarcadero or out at a city college campus, of course, those are important. Of course, many people can go there. But if you're trying to get to the hard to reach community uh, that you know is impacted, bring it to their front door. More importantly, do it in collaboration with them and help produce jobs and opportunities for people that are from that same neighborhood to then provide the service that you know you would need from somebody that you'd hire. And we've been able to create this environment where you have a lot of folks that are born and raised in this neighborhood or have migrated to this neighborhood and have an incredible amount of love and passion for it. It's one of the beauties of the Mission District through this long legacy of organizing and this struggle uh, to fight these inequities. We've built a lot of tremendous 
warriors that have passion and love and culture. Uh, and that's on full display when you show up at our sites. And it's what I think gives us this great review where, you know, I was doing a, a tour for somebody the other day, this, you know, young man just comes up to me and he's like, Hey, I just want to say that, you know, like this was such a good experience and everybody was so nice to me. And, you know, it's just like this loving thing where I'm like, Hey man, that's great. Like, I'm glad, I'm glad everybody has that experience. Um, but again, just going to the strategy of it, it's really just bringing it to the people. We're now taking it one step further and starting to do some micro sites, going to locations where we know people kind of hang out and come in showing up with 25 vaccines and seeing who we can help out as we're getting into this harder to reach population. But um, it really just is being thoughtful and having a solid partnership on the ground with folks that can help guide you in making this uh, as effective as it's been. That's great. Thank you both. In many ways, it, it almost makes sense to take vaccinations out of doctors' offices. I know that, uh, you know, more widely, I know in Japan, you don't go to your doctor to get a vaccination. They're vaccinated in the schools. And I was wondering if, if we think that we are headed that way to, to school vaccinations, especially when we get to the elementary school age, age children in the city. I think the, um, you know, as you saw that we're in, we, at least in this community, we ask for the parental attitudes. I, I think it's like one size does not fit all and having options for people is the best way to get the, the greatest coverage. Yes, have vaccinations at school, but yes, have vaccinations. If parents got vaccinated there, they might feel more comfortable bringing their children there because they know the site, they know the people, they know what the experience is. So um, that's how I think I would respond to uh, uh, give choices to people so they can find the place they're most comfortable getting vaccinated. Great. Fantastic. Um, great. Uh, one more question, Dr. Barron suggested, um, what's the sensitivity and specificity of the Binax? It seems that test that was like the pregnancy tests with the two bars, it seems like it's not used much. Should it be used more? Well, the, what the Binax test does is that it detects like 99.9% of people who probably nearly 100% who have levels of virus that we, we, we that are infectious, okay? So it doesn't detect people who have low levels of virus, but actually after COVID, you have a low level of virus and you're not even transmissible. So we felt from the very beginning, it detects the exact population um, that you are, a person is most interested, not if you're in the hospital and you're working someone up, but if you're concerned about transmission. So um, I, I think the, the US government bought like 50 million of these. They are being used in the state of California. I think they are being used in um, testing. People need to be trained to use them properly, but we do think that they have been an underutilized um, tool right now in the pandemic. Uh, one of our audience members, uh, Narita Vlach asks, can these lessons and models be applied to the epidemiology of mental health issues, which have been increasing in the population at large. So, and we talked about just sort of disseminating these models for all types of healthcare. Um, but it would seem that the community could be addressed in terms of isolation and mental health concerns. So, um, you know, it's a it, it's it's an interesting thought. Uh, but any any thoughts on the on that from you? I, I, I think absolutely. And I think it's the idea that we have health systems, but we really need better systems for health and systems for health need to be not only brick and mortar, but they need to be 
community-based and they need to be designed, led, um, and fronted hand in hand with community partners. And I think that particular principle, as you, Jeffrey, said, you know, in one of your previous questions is something that is making John and I both think about uh, needs to be pursued further. So great. This is amazing work. I'm, I'm so glad you were both able to present this work to us and, 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 and just disseminate what's going on um, in our community. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.